So again, let yourself sit comfortably and at ease. When I was reflecting on this evening and what to speak about, I thought about last Monday night and the teachings <clears throat> from Ajahn Jamnian, the meditation master from uh, the forests of southern Thailand. How many people were here last week for that? So maybe a third or half of you. And in, in those teachings, he told first the long myth of the Buddha's um, life leaving the palace and the night of his enlightenment and so forth. And then he taught some of the practices of um, liberation, of seeing with the eye of wisdom. He did it, it really as a long story. And so I thought that I would complement that with another story tonight um, that some of you may have heard because I tell it every three or four years here. Um, let me begin with a poem. Um, and the reason I start with this poem is that, as you could hear those who were here last week with Ajahn Jamnian's teachings, or as you probably know most deeply in your own heart, the spiritual journey um, is not an easy one, especially in a culture that in many ways could be defined by the absence of the sacred, the quality of speed or consumerism or other values and complexity that we live within um, in a certain way seduces us away, keeps us from remembering who we are. So this poem from Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Through the, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with his stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life that you could save. That's a pretty demanding poem, actually. <laughs> it is. It doesn't talk about, you know, sleeping well and getting up in the morning and having a croissant and a latte. <laughs> it just doesn't. It talks about the journey that is actually critical for us as human beings to find and live and embody our own life and our own spirit to change your life. And you don't have to worry about the difficulties of that poem if you haven't gone out of your house to seek them exactly, because what's also true is if you don't go look for them, 
they will come find you. And in many cases, they have for almost all of us in this room. In some way, that's true. And then the task is, well, what do we do with the difficulties that have found us or the difficulties that we live within the sea of the conditions of the world and the society, the community and the family within which we live our life. Now, what's said to be true in the Buddhist tradition is that one needs to undertake a journey of transformation or undertake a practice or a process of initiation or transformation that allows us to move from the ordinary way we live life, from the, what's called the body of fear, the small sense of self, and to reclaim or re-enliven that fearless heart that is our birthright. When you go into a Buddhist monastery, as I did a number of different times, ordained in Thailand and ordained in Burma, so forth, there was an old ritual in which you would be feted at a great banquet um, the night before you entered the monastery, um, as if you were the Prince Siddhartha leaving the palace and they'd have the finest foods and entertainment. And then the next morning, if your family could afford it, you would go to the monastery with your head shaved riding an elephant, wearing gold and, and, uh, and uh, silver, as if you were the prince up to the gates of the monastery. And you get off the elephant, whether your head was shaved or not, they would, and you would bow and they would take you in the monastery and take all the gold and silver and all the garments off and give you these plain, simple, worn robes. Perhaps they would shave your head if it wasn't, and they would take you out in the forest, the elders, into a sacred grove. And one of the very first teachings they would offer you after you bowed and said, I wish to leave the world like the Buddha has done and find my way in back to the spirit of liberation, they would give you the question, who are you really? Are you this body of hair and skin and teeth and organs, muscles, bones? Is that who you are? Who is it that has come to this monastery to seek liberation? Now, the story that I want to tell tonight is somewhat like that story. It is also an ancient Indian story. A long time ago, when you were much younger than you are now, there was a young man named Nachiketa. And Nachiketa was born in ancient India. And his father was a merchant, a businessman, who was really quite successful. And it happened that Nachiketa's father had his son when the father was already quite well into middle age, so the time that by the time that Nachiketa became a young man, his father was already getting up in years. And because he was getting old, he started to worry about, get nervous about his eternal soul. 
you know how that can kind of come back to you if you've forgotten it. There's a little sense of mortality that can return. And so in order to assure his uh, well-being after death, Nachiketa went to the priests of the local temple and made an agreement to have a huge blessing ceremony where he would be given all these prayers and blessings in exchange for offering all the goods of his life to the temple. It was going to be like one of these great merit-making festivals. So the time came, and Nachiketa's father and all the you know, people of the village and the town gathered there, and there was this whole great ceremony, and in the midst of it, his father stood up very proudly and said, I give all, of I, all that I value, you know, all my cattle, all the things of value, to the temple. Now, Nachiketa, as many young men, looked at his father somewhat critically. <laughs> and he thought the whole ceremony was actually pretty stupid. Um, he saw a hypocrisy in the religion because the priests of the temples, of the big temples, were mostly getting a lot of money, if not selling indulgences, selling blessings for some other life, and getting people to give them all their gold and their goods. And seeing the hypocrisy in it, Nachiketa looked at his father rather angrily at this whole big fancy show, and he said, you give all that you value to the temple, you know, big ego as if to get, you know, all this special attention from the town. You give all that you value. How about me, your son? And Nachiketa's father was so insulted by what his son said to him. He said, I give you, I give you to, I give you to death, which is like saying drop dead. Um, he was pretty angry. And Nachiketa looked back at his father as only a fine young teenager can do and said, I accept. Um, you give me to death, I accept. Now, let's just pause at this part in the story. We all know that there's hypocrisy in religion. It can be, as in anything else. And you can find it in Buddhism when you go to certain temples or in Hinduism. And big surprise, in the church <laughs> or in the temples of other religions. Um, Joseph Campbell called popular religion an inoculation against the mystery. That we do it a little bit so that it kind of protects us from the reality. But there is nothing that protects us from the reality of what we're eventually going to face. There's the story of W.C. Fields, who was um, notorious for being an atheist. And when he was in his, in, on his deathbed in the hospital, terribly sick, one day a good friend of W.C. Fields walked into the room and saw him flipping through the Bible that was there in the table next to the bed. And he said, but, you know, W.C., I thought, you know, I thought you were, you didn't believe in this stuff. And W.C. Fields looked up and he said, just looking for loopholes. <laughs> but the truth is, that all of us with eyes to see can see the hypocrisy of the society and world around us. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men 
and women are created equal, it says. And yet, is it true? The racism, the injustice, the continuing sales of arms in the tens and hundreds of billions of dollars worldwide, and then we don't feel safe. You know, we're the airbag society. We're trying to make everything safe for ourselves. And we pay for it by selling weapons to just about every country on the face of the earth. Or our education system, as John Gatto, the New York City Teacher of the Year, said when he assembled, you know, spoke to receive his award. Um, Think of the things that are killing us as a nation. Drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a religion. All are addictions of dependent personalities, and that is what our brand of education is designed to increase. He quit after that also. (laughs) So this was Nachiketa looking. He was looking at the fact that the U.S. has not signed the landmine treaty. We're afraid we're not safe. Every other nation on earth but two have signed the landmine treaty. But our generals didn't feel it was safe enough. I mean, you could weep. And so Nachiketa stood up and he said, listen, this stuff, I just can't take at face value anymore. I cannot take it. So then, when one looks, as Nachiketa did, he said, let me face death. You give me to death, I will face death. Let me see what really matters, because death is the mirror that shows us that. What do I have to give up to be really free to face death? for the heart to be free. You know that old story. The man who was extremely rich and had all these things and finally he died. And everyone was saying, well, you know, how much did he leave? And somebody else says, well, everything, of course. I mean, how much do you leave? You know? <laughs> so Nachiketa said, I'm going to face death. Don Juan puts it this way. I'm speaking to Carlos Castaneda. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length, and it always has been watching you, waiting until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just catch the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Or Richard Baker Roshi, Zen teacher, was there in uh, the Castro with his Dharma successor, Isan Dorsey, who was an abbot in the Zen center in the Castro. And, and Richard Baker used to say to his students, if you're with someone who's dying and you're not willing to trade places with them at that very moment, then you're not really practicing. You know how Zen is, you know, they're extreme, right? <laughs> so when Isan Dorsey was dying of AIDS, Richard Baker came to visit him saying, I wish I could trade places with you right now. Don't worry, responded Isan, you'll get your chance. <laughs> 
And it's true, isn't it? You don't have to worry. We all will get our chance. So Nachiketa, instead of running away, as young men and young women do with their integrity and courage, said, I want to seek something truer than the consumerism that my father has participated in or than the, you know, the hypocrisy of the culture. And I will seek death with a kind of dignity that is there in a, in a genuine journey. And how did he find death? He simply stopped and did nothing for three days, absolutely nothing, looking for the Lord of death. Now, when you go into the temples in Japan, um, there's a practice called Tangario. They don't let you go into a Zen temple and say, all right, I'm here, I want to practice Zen. You know, they'll say, go home to your mother or something like that. You have to prove that you're ready to transform your heart. And the way that's done is to go and sit outside the gates of the temple and not move for as many days as you can. And then inside they kind of look over the wall and one will nudge the other and say, you know, we got another one out there, right? And then they kind of watch the young man or the young woman who's doing that day, two, three days. Maybe it's winter, snow, he's sitting in the snow. Yeah, I think we got a live one, you know. And after a while they open the gates and they say, all right, you look serious enough, come in and we might consider training you. So this was kind of Nachiketa's way. Now, I have to make a caveat for this particular story. It's a pretty masculine story in its images. Um, One doesn't just have to sit for three days and not move, which is what Nachiketa did. Um, I remember when my wife was in labor with our daughter Caroline, and because Caroline's head wasn't engaged fully, even though she was upside down and in the right easy posture for birth. Her head didn't engage quite right. So um, my wife's labor was 56 hours. It was almost three days. And we kept going to the hospital every, you know, day or 12 hours, 15 hours. And they say, yeah, not very dilated. Go back home. And the labor was really intense. And it just went on. By the time, you know, it was time for Caroline to be born, Liana would have this huge contraction, you know, and then she'd fall asleep for a minute between them because she hadn't slept for three days and nights. So we each have our way of finding that interface between this world that seems ordinary and the mystery that is stalking us every day, the mystery of death, the mystery of something greater. So Nachiketa sat there, and undertook his descent, if you will. It's like the descent of Inanna in the Sumerian epic, where she goes down into the underworld. He said, I will face death. Let me find him. And so after three days of not moving, not moving in the slightest, Nachiketa arrived at the land of Lord Yama, the Lord of Death, who is also called the Great Accountant, not to be insulting to any of you in your (laughs) occupations. He's also called the keeper of the law. But Lord Yama wasn't there. He was out collecting rent. (laughs) Only some of his assistants, pestilence, aging, war, and famine were around. (laughs) 
And he's and and uh, Nachiketa said, "Where is Lord Yama?" And they said, "He's not here. You'll have to wait. You know, he won't be back for some days." And Nachiketa stared at them and said, "That's fine. I will wait." Now, this was a relatively unusual young man. Usually, people come, you know, near death and they run the other way. But instead, Nachiketa was willing to make the descent to actually face that which was most difficult. And in fact, if we undertake, whether it's a meditation practice or any other genuine spiritual discipline, something of this kind will be required of of us. We always have to face the death of who we were for something new to be born. And whether it's sitting in meditation, there you sit, just trying to be quiet and peaceful, and the unfinished business, the grief that you carry, the anger that's unresolved, the longings of the heart arise. And what can you do? What must you do? You must turn and face them with your mind open and your heart open. Or maybe you sit there and you've been running your whole life and what comes and hits you over the head is loneliness and boredom. I am so bored. You know, that sign that was on the highway in the desert, this great big picture of the big, long desert highway in the southwest, and one of those road signs, and it said, your own tedious thoughts, next 200 miles. Right? <laughs> this is meditation. Right? So you sit there, and you get your boredom, or your self-judgment, or your fear. And whatever it is, sooner or later you'll be afraid because when we're about to change, what arises? Fear. In fact, fear is the membrane between what we know and something new. If you had a little light on your dashboard, when fear arises, what it would say is about to grow, right? Like it or not, about to grow. Fear is that entryway into something new. So Nachiketa undertook his discipline, as all of us must if we are to transform ourselves. And then death arrived, Lord Yama, and the assistant said, there's a rather unusual man here, you know, young man. He didn't run away, he actually came here looking for you. So Lord Yama went up to him, introduced himself, and then said, I hear you've been waiting for me for three days and three nights. And Nachiketa said, yes, it is so. And Lord Yama said, well, pardon me for being delayed, for having kept you waiting. I see that you're an unusual young man. And because I have kept you waiting for three days and three nights, I will grant you three boons, three wishes for the journey that you undertake. Now, here we are. The Lord of Death grants you three wishes on your journey of transformation, what would you ask? Nachikesa sat still for a time and reflected. This is, you know, how these fairy tales go. When you get your wishes, you have to really think this out a little bit, right? (laughs) You can get in trouble with it. But Nachiketa was a wise young man. So the first wish that he asked for was was the wish of forgiveness. He said, may my father see me as the day I was born, and may I see myself 
with that innocence and mercy and forgiveness. It's a wonderful and wise gift because whether it's your parents or your children or your exes or your siblings or other people, almost all of us have somebody, don't we? Or some situation or some betrayal or some circumstance that still keeps us tied inside. And Nachiketa could feel that in the struggle with his father. Let my father see me as I was the day that I was born. Forgiveness is necessary for the journey. It is the heart's act of letting go. Otherwise, we repeat over and over like Bosnia and Serbia and Croatia or Northern Ireland or Cambodia or Rwanda or the Palestinians and the Israelis, and there is no way out. One year after another, one generation after another, it can go on for hundreds of years until somebody finally says, "Ah, it stops with me, I will let go. And yet there is no other way for us as humans to be free on this earth. Otherwise, we perpetuate the horrors. Someone must learn this. Now, to forgive doesn't mean that we condone what happens. It simply means, in the end, that we will not put another being out of our heart. It's really what allows the heart to let go of the past so we are free. Gee, it's nice to hear those kids (laughs) running around warm spring summer evening. I had a lot of forgiveness in my own family to work with because my father was an abusive and difficult violent man. My mother used to have to hide bottles behind the curtains in our house, different rooms, so there would be one nearby that she could pick up to defend herself. That's how bad it was in our house. You know, and I worked for a long time on forgiveness with my father and letting go of the betrayals and the pain. And when he had a heart attack at age 65, um, he actually lived 10 more years after that, but he was in the hospital and they thought he was going to die. And I went to see him in the ICU and he was all intubated with all these tubes and everything and he was there and he's sort of half out of it and weren't sure they were going to do Surge, open heart surgery, maybe save him, but maybe not. And I was talking to him for a day or so, two days, and then I realized I really had forgiven him a lot. And I looked at him and I said, you know, Dad, no matter all that's happened, I just want to say I love you. And he looked at me, and even though he was sort of half out of it with all these tubes, he lifted one hand with an arm with the tubes on it and brought it to his nose and held his nose as if I'd said something that smelled really bad and shook his head like that. This was where I came from, okay? You can see why I'm teaching this stuff, trying to get it right. But in a way, the guy had a certain kind of, he just, he had himself. He just wouldn't give, you know, there he was. And I ended up coming to respect that. That was just his way. We didn't do that, do it that way in our family. All right, that's the way it was. I forgave him anyway. To forgive doesn't mean you condone. You may say, never again. I will do whatever it takes to prevent this harm happening to me or someone I love or anyone on this earth. 
it's not that at all. It's really for one's own hearts what Nachiketa asked for, like the two prisoners of war, ex-prisoners of war. One says to the other, have you forgiven your captors yet? And the second one says, no, never. And the first one replies, well then, they still have you in prison, don't they? That's the real meaning of forgiveness. And it can't be papered over. It has grief and anger and tears. One needs to be able to grieve. Um, This amazing poem where Rilke writes about Orpheus and Orpheus's descent, another one of these great descent stories. And you know, Orpheus goes down because he so loved Eurydice, he just wants to bring her back. And he's the greatest musician on the face of the earth. And he, he plays his music to entrance all those on the way down to Hades to uh, bring back his beloved and does enchant them. And you remember the story, don't you? And then Orpheus is allowed to bring his beloved back, Mercury, um, who is the god that travels between the worlds, will bring her back with him behind Orpheus. But there's only one little caveat. Orpheus is not allowed to turn back. And so in the poem, Rilke speaks about him and her and says, a woman so loved, Orpheus so loved her, that from one liar there came more lament than from all lamenting women, that a whole world of lament and sorrow arose in which all nature reappeared, forest and valley, field and stream and animal, and around this lament world, as around another earth, the sun revolved and the stars sang in a lament-filled heaven, so greatly was she loved. And they walked silently, slowly. He said to himself, they had to be behind him. He said it aloud and heard it fade away. They had to be behind him, but their steps were ominously soft. If only he could turn around just once, just once to see, was she really following? So to forgive means sometimes that we shed the tears of loss and betrayal and grief. And then finally one day there comes, as Longfellow writes, the secret history of the other. If we could read the secret history of our betrayers, we would see sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. And so we find in our way the forgiveness necessary for our own self, for those we love, for those we've struggled with, for our body and mind, and for this earth. And without it, our journey doesn't have the water, the heart, the tears, the spirit to really open us. That's one wish. And if you can do it, you're well on your way. Wish number two. Granted by Lord Yama, I grant you forgiveness. Nachiketa reflected, ah, my second wish, being a young man as he was, I wish for fire, aliveness, 
I want that quality of living life to its fullest. Does this path have a heart, is the question from uh, Don Juan to Carlos Castaneda. Look at every path that you may have traveled and ask yourself one question, one question alone. Does this path have a heart? It speaks of that quality of courage and wholeness that's necessary. Carl Jung puts it this way, the attainment of wholeness requires one to stake one's whole being. Nothing less will do. There can be no easier conditions, no substitutes, no compromises. And so Nachiketa asked for that fire of energy, sincerity of heart. He realized that to be free required offering his whole being, that to do anything of value requires that we offer our whole being, whether it is our meditation or our art or our work in the world or our love relationship or our parenting. There we saw a little Taran there and I thought of my daughter when she was that age and I remember this poem from William Stafford, great American poet entitled With Kit, the name of his daughter, age seven at the beach. We would climb the highest dune from there to gaze and come down. The ocean was performing. We contributed our climb. Waves leapfrogged and came straight out of the storm. What should our gaze mean? Kit waited for me to decide. How far could you swim, Daddy, if I were lost? in such a storm. As far as was needed, I said, and as I answered, I swam. Whatever it is that you have devoted yourself to, to fully liberate your being, you have to give your heart, your spirit, your body to it. That spirit that Nachiketa asked for. Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods, but watch out, because the gods will come and they will put you on their anvil and fire up their forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. That's an old Indian saying. Now, I don't know what disciplines you love and what you've devoted yourself to, but I know that anyone who takes meditation or a spiritual path as a genuine vehicle for transformation has to give themselves to it over and over a hundred thousand times. But if you're an activist and that's your journey, it is the same. 999,000 defeats and then finally a success. And I think of it, and I read this story that I read you now in honor of Aung San Suu Kyi, who was just put back under house arrest in Burma after being out for a year and in for the 10 years, almost out of 15 prior. And yet, she says, one must learn to build a citadel of endurance on the foundations of anguish. How can anyone who has learned to ignite their, their heart with the thunder flame of their own pain ever know no do defeat? Victory and freedom is ensured to those who are capable of learning the hardest lessons 
that life has to offer and keep the light shining. So during World War II, a Norwegian pastor who had worked with the underground saving as many gypsies and gays and Jews as he could was called into Gestapo headquarters told to sit opposite, in a chair opposite the German officer. Before the interrogation began, the Gestapo chief took out of his holster a German Luger, placed a pistol right on the table between them and the pastor. And the pastor, without a moment's hesitation, reached into his satchel and pulled out his Bible and placed it right next to the gun. And the German officer demanded, why did you do that? And the minister replied, you have placed your weapon on the table, and so have I. I was in San Quentin teaching last week after our evening in the city. Some of you may have come with Michael Mead, Luis Rodriguez, Alice Walker, Orlin Bishop, a number of people that I work with in with young men and youth gangs and prison work. We were in San Quentin for a good part of Monday in the maximum security yard doing teachings and poetry and um, dialogue with the men who were there. And there are a lot of lifers, you know, and these are people who are now 40, 45, 50 years old, come out and say, I've been here 20 years. I've been here 25 years, you know, doing, doing really long time. And you look and you say, I wonder who they killed, right? Or wonder what they did. That's part of the question. And then you realize that many of them did what they did when they were teenagers or when they were 20, when they were really young. And they're not even that person anymore. They're a different person, somebody entirely different. But here it is, this huge warehouse, this prison that's put in all these beautiful young men, some of them who had the most fire in their community you know, the most alive kind of poverty prison. So this is from one person who wrote, the noise and lack of privacy are the greatest obstacle to doing meditation practice in prison. And a number of these guys came up and they've been, you know, there was this dog-eared copy of A Path with Heart, would you please sign this? It's been in San Quentin for 10 years and passed around from cell to cell. You know, what could I say? It was um, very moving. But the noise, the lack of privacy, are such a big obstacle. From 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., the prison's overcrowded living conditions are in an almost constant uproar. To practice during these hours, I used to clean out one of the sanitation closets where the mops, brooms, and trash barrels are kept. People thought I was a little strange sitting in the trash closet, but they got used to me sitting there. I started sitting in a two-man cell in this hellish jail. Now I've been sitting daily ever since. I finally acquired a single room in 1987 where I was be able began the nundro practices of 100,000 prostrations and recitations I got from my lama. Now the guards come by to count heads at 5 a.m. and they see me doing full prostrations on the floor beside my bed. That's the kind of spirit that Nachiketa asked from the Lord of Death. May I be given that strength to tend the fires of my life, to offer myself, whether it is a parent, whether it is a, you know, a meditator, whether it is a peacemaker, whether it is 
a healer, to give myself to that discipline so that I transform and free my heart. And Lord Yama looked back at him and said, yes, I grant you this fire. May you be granted that. And now you get one more wish. What is your third wish, said Lord Yama, looking into the eyes of Nachiketa. And Nachiketa looked back with some reflection and said, I ask for the boon of immortality, the deathless. And Lord Yama took a breath and said, are you sure? You know, this is your last wish. How about maidens? And before Nachiketa's eyes appeared all the beautiful maidens of the world. How about, a, how about the, the most fantastic war chariot that one could be granted? You know, the Ferrari of the time. <laughs> Showed him all the possibilities. You know, Lexus con- um, contacted Spirit Rock a couple weeks ago, wanted to use the new um, residential retreat hall in an ad. Um, we were kind of fantasizing about what it would look like, you know. I mean, there wasn't, a, well, we thought about it. Do we have a price? You know, can we be bought? Because we didn't want to do it, of course, really, but then we said, yeah, we have a price. You know, there's a certain, maybe if they gave a Lexus to every staff member and every teacher, (laughs) you know. Some people said a million was their price. They could be bought, but anyway. So, so, uh, Lord Yama presented Nachiketa. He said, oh, you don't like a Lexus, how about a Maserati, whatever it was. No. Well, then he showed him a palace, you know, and you would be the prince and you would be the king and you would have grandchildren and you would have great armies and a great court. Nachiketa saw all the possibilities. I mean, we live in Marin, you know the possibilities, right? (laughs) We're all kind of in that domain. And being a very wise young man, looked back into the eyes of Lord Yama and said, before I answer you this, I must ask you a question. Will not all these wonderful things you have shown to me soon return to your domain? Nachiketa asked this, and Lord Yama bowed his head and said, yes, it is true. Nachiketa said, I'm not interested in the small stuff. Thank you. And because Lord Yama saw that this young man had a wise heart. He became in that moment the benefactor to Nachiketa. And he said, I will grant you your third boon. And he gave him a gift, a very simple gift. And the gift that Lord Yama offered to Nachiketa was a mirror. And he said, I cannot answer the question of immortality with words to you, Nachiketa. But if you look, as the Zen master said, into this mirror and ask the question, who am I really? Who am I really? In a moment you will see. Are you your body? I mean, are you the meat body, the food body? Is that who you are? I hope not. 
I mean, now we start taking pictures really early. You know how your parents kept a record of your childhood? Now it's like this little kind of squiggly thing on a sonogram, right? There you are. Smile for the camera. Is that who you are? That little fish in there? You're not the same as that. I mean, is this body? Come on. You just wear it, right? You rent it. So from Avis or whatever, and you turn it back in. All right, well, I'm not my body. Maybe I get to use my body. I'm not, but am I my feelings? I hope not. You know? I mean, they change all the time. You can't be your feelings. Well, how about on my thoughts? That's even more absurd, isn't it? Because one moment they tell in one story, and another moment they have an entirely different story. If you were your thoughts, you would be a different person. You would be a different person a lot of the time which in many cases you probably are. <laughs> so there's something else that is true, and often we don't touch it until those times in our life of loss, the loss of a partner, the death of someone we love, the end of a job that we love, the, the loss of a home, and all of a sudden we say, well, who am I? If this isn't, if this isn't who I am, this body, this relationship, this, this whatever it was. You know about loss, don't you? Who am I really underneath all of that? So my friend, my good friend, Wavy Gravy, <laughs> likes to go into children's hospitals as a clown that he is um, and work the wards where children are the sickest. And so he's been doing this for 20 years, going from bed to bed, kind of amusing the kids, trying to bring their spirits back. Because things get very tough in there, he said. I'll tell you, they were really tough for me in the beginning. No one sees us to, teaches us to face the suffering in this society. Seeing children dying was one of the hardest things I've ever seen. I was starting out making the rounds one day at a children's hospital, and there was one room with a shade pulled down I couldn't see in. It was the burn unit, badly burned children in it. So I went in, and there was this one little black kid in one of them. He was horribly burned. He looked like burnt toast. Pieces of his face weren't there. Where was his mouth? You could hardly tell. There's no way of pinning a person to what I saw. It was just mind-boggling. My jaw dropped. I gasped. I became completely unglued. I remember flashing back to the Vietnam War, that picture of the napalm kid I used to carry at demonstrations, and suddenly he was right in front of me, unbelievably difficult to look at. I was overwhelmed and my mind went off in all directions. What's it going to be like if he lives? What if I had a child like this? What if it was me? So there we were, burnt toast, an unglued clown. And all of a sudden, this other little kid comes whizzing by, skating along with his IV pole, and he stops, kind of pushes around me, looks into the crib at this kid, and out comes, hey, you ugly, just like that. And the burnt kid made this gurgling laugh kind of noise, and his face kind of moved around, and all of a sudden I looked into his eyes, and we locked up right there, and everything else dissolved. And it was like going through a tunnel right to his heart, and all the burnt flesh disappeared, and I saw him from another place. He probably knows what he's got to deal with more than anybody else, and what he needs is somebody to see who he really is. 
So this is what Lord Yama asks of Nachiketa. To take the mirror and look inside and to see to whom does this life happen. Remember from last week when Ajahn Jamnian was teaching and he told the story of the Buddha and then he offered the practice of what he called Mahavipassana or Mahasati, the great awareness that sees with the eye of wisdom, that rests in awareness itself and not the experiences that come and go. My teacher Nisargadat used to speak about this all the time in India. He would say, people would ask him, you know, you're getting old, what do you think about dying? And he'd say, you insult me, I'm never going to die. You think I am this meat body? I was never born, this has nothing to do with me. This is not me. He said, you only know yourself through the body and senses. You take these to be what, they, what you are. To myself, I am neither perceivable nor describable. There's nothing I can point to and say, this I am. You identify with everything, your body, your gender, your work, your race, your community, so easily, all these things. For me, this is impossible. I know this is not who I am. For wisdom sees I am nothing, and love sees I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. So if you look in your meditation, in the time when you're silent and your thoughts go quiet, the space between the stories about yourself, between the thoughts, who are you really? Who are we? Because when the thoughts start to disappear, you know who else disappears? Moi, as Miss Piggy used to say, right? (laughs) There is the small sense of self that we construct from story, the body of fear. And one man went to the Buddha one day and said, I have a question for you. How is it possible to not be seen by the king of death? This is, again, Nachiketa's request of Lord Yama. And the Buddha answered, For one who abides without grasping a single thing as me or mine, not my body, not my thoughts, not my experiences, for one who abides in the realm that is selfless, such a one will not be seen by the king of death. Now this is not a theory. Remember that little song that the Hindus say a baby sings in its womb? Oh, don't, do not let me forget who I am and how the song changes after they're born. Oh dear, I'm forgetting already. <laughs> who is it that was born into your body? Who was that little thing in the sonogram that they didn't even have when you were a kid probably, but it would have been there if you were, you know, and who's gone through all these permutations of body and feelings and thoughts, who experiences all of that? Often in India, when one goes to see a great master, they will simply look you in the eye like that mirror of Nachiketas with what is called the glance of mercy, with so much love and compassion and say, oh, you don't remember, do you? who you really are, you've forgotten. Let me remind you. 
Who you are is timeless and unshakable, is unborn, is the pure, free, liberated awareness that is hearing these words and seeing these sights and yet unaffected by them. Your own being is like that great mirror in which sights and sounds and smells and tastes, thoughts and images rise and pass, and yet it is untouched. And if you think this isn't true, go home and look in your mirror. And you look at your body and it's aging, whatever age you are, even if you're 20 years old. You know, you're not like you when you were 10 or 13. It's aging, isn't it? But what is the age of the one who is looking? What you'll discover is it doesn't age at all. What is in time is the physical elements of body and mind and the invitation of Nachiketa was to discover that space of awareness, that pure consciousness that is here in any moment for us to rest in, that knows experience and yet is unshakable. See if it's not true for yourself. Look back. Who is listening to these words? And you look and you say, no one. See if you can find who's listening. And that no one, that space, still hears and knows. That is the space of liberating awareness, silent, vast, and free. So Nachiketa was free, enlightened, liberated. Now we pause for a moment toward the end of the story. I have two questions to ask you. If you were to place yourself somewhere in this story, if you had to pick a spot or a character, who would you be? Would you be Lord Yama? Would you be Nachiketa's father or the priests in the temple or all the cows that are being given away? You know? Would you be Nachiketa's friends who are watching him? Or would you be asking for forgiveness? Or seeking the answer to the question, who am I really? Would you be the one seeking your passion? If you place yourself in the intelligence of this ancient story, it will teach you. Question number two. It would be fun to ask where you are, but we don't have time. How many are in forgiveness? Oh, about that many hands go up. How many are looking who they are? How many are still struggling with their father? You know, or their mother, or whatever it was. How many are still struggling with the church? You know, or the temple? Second question. There's Nachiketa, he's still in the underworld. After he was awakened, it is time for Nachiketa to return. What brings him back? What makes Nachiketa return? I'll give you a hint. Nachiketa sat there and was awakened. He let himself look into the mirror and see, 
to ask, who am I really? And in looking, there came a great and profound silence. And within that silence, he could see the great dance of birth and death and rest in its center. One Zen poet, though I should live to be a hundred, the same world, the same cherry blossoms. And another Zen poet, empty-handed I entered the world, barefoot I leave it. My coming and going, two simple happenings that got entangled for a time. So here is my teacher Nisargadot saying, wisdom says I am nothing, love says I am everything. Being nothing, I am everything. And knowing this reality, Nachiketu was freed. But because he was freed into being nothing, he discovered, yes, I am everything. And so one answer to my question, you may have another, is that Nachiketa didn't have to return because when he saw with the eyes of wisdom, he discovered that not one step ever led him away from where he really was. This from Black Elk, the great Indian sage and healer, standing on top of, what was it, Harney Peak, I think was that great mountain. And then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole circle of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell and understood more than I saw, for I was seeing in a sacred manner the shape of all things of the spirit, the shape of all shapes as they live together like one being. And I saw the sacred hoop or circle of my people was one of the many hoops that made one circle wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and father. And I saw that it was holy. But you must remember that anywhere is the center of the world, says Black Elk. Anywhere is holy ground. And this was the last discovery of Nachiketa. That when he opened his eyes to see in that sacred way, not one step could ever lead him from the eternal. Not one step leads away. Nearer than near is this truth. Are you looking for me, asked Kabir? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. And so Nachiketa came through his initiation. He willingly faced the things that we often run away from and said, all right, let me let go of everything until I find that which is unshakable in my heart. And I think of him like Nelson Mandela walking out of prison after 27 years with such dignity and spirit and magnanimity and wisdom that he could change a whole nation of South Africa and inspire a whole world. I think of him like Gandhi, who said, I believe in the essential unity of all that lives, and therefore I believe that if one person gains spiritually, the whole world gains, and that if one person falls, the whole world falls 
to that extent. And Nachiketa came back renewed and alive and freed by forgiveness of all things. By tending the fire of his life, by the giving himself fully to what he most cared about so that he could die into it and be born in a free way. And by looking into his own heart to say, who am I really? There was awakened him the great, wise, compassionate heart of the Buddha. And he returned again with what are called in Zen, bliss-bestowing hands. With my wine bottle and staff, I entered the marketplace as the old Zen master laughing. And all whom I look upon become enlightened. Anyone who takes this journey, who faces their own fears, who offers the depths of forgiveness, who gives themselves fully and finds that which is unshakable in this life, becomes a bestower of gifts on all those around them. And it is true for each of you. As much as you do this, as much do you have to offer. So let's just sit for a moment. O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones, do not forget who you really are. Enter into your own heart, enter into this journey of awakening, however difficult it may be, and find through it liberation and compassion. May it be so for you. I think actually in these times, because the world is in certain ways in a very difficult period, that uh, more than ever we need to really trust and carry that flame of our spirit. Now is the time, if ever, for that. So. Um, I thank you for your kind attention and listening. I hope Nachiketa's adventure reminded you of something that is of value to your heart because this story has been told for two or three thousand years for some good reason.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.